You're listening to TIP. Fit put, if you will, is this sort of concept amongst investors whereby, and much like how a put would sort of give you this sort of return profile, if the market goes down enough, eventually we're going to get a policy response that kicks in and starts to get you paid on the long side of risk assets, similar to owning a put. If the market goes down enough, On today's episode, I'm joined by Darius Dale. Darius is the founder and CEO of 42 Macro, an investment research firm that aims to disrupt the financial services industry by providing institutional-grade macroeconomic research. Prior to founding 42 Macro, Darius was a managing director and partner at Hedgeye Risk Management. During the episode, Darius sheds light on the impact the Russian invasion of Ukraine has on financial markets, why the market expects inflation to come down in the near term, what a Fed put is, what the drivers of continued inflation will be going forward, what an inverted yield curve ultimately signals to the market, the one asset class that investors should consider allocating to given the current macro environment, and much more. Although it's very difficult to predict what will happen to the markets in the short term, I like to stay in tune with what's happening with the macro environment so I can be prepared for a variety of different scenarios. With that, I hope you enjoy today's episode with Darius Dale. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today we have on the show Darius Dale. Darius, thank you for joining me. Clay, it's a pleasure to finally join you guys, man. How you been? I've been great, man. You know, like I've said many times before on the show, we here at TIP are huge fans of Warren Buffett, who tends to totally ignore anything macro when it comes to making investment decisions because he just really hasn't found it helpful or something he wants to spend his time on. But I wanted to ask you to get our conversation kicked off. Why do you pay so much attention to these macro forces? Look, if you have Buffett's duration in terms of the, uh, the investors, the amount of sort of liquidity profile of the investors that invest in his fund and obviously himself, then you can take those types of micro bets and really ignore macro. But the reality is most of us as human beings that need cash, that need liquidity, as investors, you know, we have different investment targets and return targets. You don't have the ability to wait for things to happen on the micro scale. Micro scale, these things tend to take three, five years in terms of businesses turning around or developing and getting enough market share to really kind of you know, flow through earnings. That stuff, macro happens a lot faster than that. You can lose a hell of a lot of money along the way. Um, and so it's my job and job of folks who do what I do for a living is to help investors sort of kind of risk manage that path along the way, that sequence. Because ultimately, the destination is sort of how you get paid over the long term, but the sequence is how you lose money in the short term on the way there. And so that's what we're trying to do as macro risk management advisors is help people avoid those big potholes. Like I said, we've originally started from the Warren Buffett School of Thought. I started listening to TIP back in 2016, 2017 and joined the team in 2021. And over time, they've kind of gone in the direction of paying more attention to macro because it just seems so hard not to pay attention to it. You know, Just in the last couple of years, you've seen the Russia-Ukraine situation, you've seen COVID, you've seen just this massive involvement of the Federal Reserve and such. So we're going to be digging into all of that. Yeah. So, I mean, look, it's, I hate to simplify it, but it's, if you, in terms of how we calculate net liquidity, which in terms of our analysis, we look at the Fed's balance sheet plus or minus the treasury general account balance, those things work in opposite directions in terms of liquidity provision. 
And it's a very, very tight correlation to the stock market over the last kind of 10, 12, 13 years. And so it's obviously you don't want to boil down any macro process or any investment process to sort of one thing. But I do believe it's critically important to understand all the drivers that cause that line to go up or down, because ultimately that's the line that's going to determine whether or not you know, stocks are higher, crypto's higher or lower, et cetera. Let's start with Russia and Ukraine. You know, from a yep. macro perspective, what sort of financial impact has the Russian invasion of Ukraine had on the markets? Yeah, well, to me, it's really the secondary impacts as it relates to commodity price shock. We saw that. We've come off a bit, quite a bit, particularly in crude oil from the initial response to the invasion. But the reality is we've not come off nearly enough if you look at it across some of the more thinly traded markets, base metals, particularly ag, um, uh, for instance, as well. You know, those things continue to make higher highs and higher lows, partially as a function of this, but also partially as a function of global stocks being stockpiles being kind of pretty tight for a lot of different markets. Let's not forget Russia's, you know, I think the world's number two exporter of crude oil, number one exporter of nat gas, number three exporter of steel, Ukraine's the number two exporter in all kinds of cereals and grains. It's a big deal that these two countries are fighting because it really is a potentially structural threat to commodity uh, supplies and not only just supplies, but the entire infrastructure and supply chain associated with that. It's not just, hey, we got to get stuff out of Ukraine or out of Russia into somewhere else. It's these ships may be harbored and embargoed and preventing transactions that occur later on down the line and stuff like that. So it's a messy situation. It's a messy situation that could potentially get worse and will only get worse the longer the conflict is prolonged. Do you think the Russian invasion of Ukraine impacts the Federal Reserve's hawkish stance of wanting to raise rates this year? How does this macro force impact the Fed's ability to raise rates? Because it seems like a pretty bad time to raise rates when these inflationary pressures are coming in that weren't foreseen you know, a couple months ago. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. I think that's a very fair question. If you sort of inflation sort of had kind of like three or four ways really since the initial lockdowns. You know, it was kind of the first initial wave of reopening. Then we had the COVID scare in December 2020. And then we had a sort of secondary wave of inflation that was largely a function of the fiscal stimulus package uh, Joe Biden passed right after he got elected. And then we had the third wave of inflation that was sort of the supply chain disruptions that we saw in the fall associated with reopening and Christmas purchases and all that stuff. And then we get in this fourth wave that's really just a function of Russia, Ukraine. The reality is from the Fed's perspective, you know, when you look at the measures that really matter to them from an inflation perspective, it's core PCE. That's their preferred inflation metric that has very little, there's hardly anything that has anything to do with kind of food and energy prices in that basket. And we're still tracking at levels that are multiples of what their target is. Their target's two and a half percent, if you think about it on a symmetric basis. And, you know, we're up at four or five percent in these metrics, still climbing, actually. We're still continuing to accelerate. If you look at the sequential momentum in the time series, it continues to be higher than the actual year over year print. So we're still moving in the wrong direction. For that, median CPI up at 6.5% on a three-month annualized basis, sticky CPI over 6 as well. These are things that have very little to do. I mean, obviously, everything's tethered together as it relates to prices, but the Fed doesn't have the convenient excuse, at least according to these metrics, these particular inflation metrics, that they can sort of sit on their hands and say, well, we, let's wait out this crisis. They don't have that opportunity there because it's telling them that data are telling them there's really... It's not just Russia, Ukraine. If anything, Russia, Ukraine is kind of a scarecrow relative to the real underlying inflation pressure we're seeing in the economy. I keep seeing talks of inflation peaking, which kind of catches me by surprise, but I'm definitely no macro expert. With the sanctions put in place by the Russian government, 
You think that if Russia isn't exporting some of these goods, there could be massive inflationary pressures, even greater than what we've already seen. So I'm curious, why is there such a strong view that inflation has peaked if there is this uncertainty around Russian exports? Yeah, that's a phenomenal question, Clay. And this, is, this goes back to the kind of discussion centering around base effects. And that's just the relationship between you know, the momentum and the time series versus the changes in momentum and time series on a lagged basis of what we observed last year and the previous years. And so when you get into April in particular, the base effects curve really steepens. And so all things being equal, you need to actually accelerate in order to maintain the same year over year rate of change. It's just basic math. You know, the reality is it's unlikely that we see, unless we see something incremental out of Russia and Ukraine, it is unlikely that we maintain enough sequential momentum in the time series month over month, then three month over three month in the time series to keep inflation prints accelerating on a year over year basis. Now, that doesn't mean anything from my perspective, because not only does the Fed expect inflation to be lower on a year-over-year basis, one year out, two years out, consensus, Bloomberg consensus, the economists on Wall Street, including myself, we think it's going to come down as well. The problem isn't that the year-over-year is coming down. The problem is that the sequentials continue to be way higher than the actual uh, uh, targets. As I mentioned, the three-month annualized for all those different indicators that I highlighted earlier, median CPI, sticky CPI, core PCE is up in the 5 to 6% range. We're talking about in a country that has a 2% inflation target, and we're building momentum in the 5 to 6% range. So I think the year-over-year is really noise in the context of the question you just asked, because it's not really telling anything, but that the fact the base of X is deepening. What we care about is inflation going down or up. The most recent CPI print that we saw was around 8%. And when I look at the treasury yields, I see yields at roughly, call it 2% on a one or two-year basis. Why would someone want to hold some of these very short-term treasuries to achieve a yield that's not even close to even the CPI inflation? So I'm curious what your thoughts are regarding why the yields on some of these shorter-term bonds are so low. Is it just people that just want that guaranteed return? You know, Whatever the market gives them, they'll just take it. And it's just a matter of that. Well, no, it's a function of arbitrage. And so, you know, the reason the whole entire interest rate curve looks like it does is because it's partially a function of market-based expectations on the Fed policy rate and the projected path forward of the Fed policy rate. And so it's never going to materially diverge from that, that expected path forward. And if it does materially diverge, then you're going to get a ton of people coming in arbitrage that spread out of the market. And so this is why rates continue to remain fairly well anchored, certainly relative to eight on its way to probably nine or 10% inflation rate, right? Because it's really just a function of the Fed's forward guidance and the market's expectations therein. There's also a lot of regulatory reasons why just the general sort of level of interest rates, not just in the US economy, but also in the European and Japanese economies are so low. There's a lot of regulatory pressure from regulators to sort of kind of, I wouldn't necessarily say force banks and dealers into these types of assets and asset managers in these types of assets, but it certainly reads that way. The net outcome is that way in terms of something like Basel, for instance, you can have asset A on a balance sheet, which is a credit or what we call a spread product, high yield credit or emerging market debt or something like that. And you have to reserve a lot more from a fractional reserve banking perspective to main to hold on to that kind of exposure or something like treasury bonds or German boons if you're in Germany or JGBs if you're in Japan, you don't have to reserve anything. And so it's a lot cheaper for you to build up a balance sheet with these types of securities than it is for those types of securities. And so that's just one of the kind of mini regulatory tailwinds for the treasury market and for global sovereign debt markets broadly. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. 
making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure-ready RAV4, available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with the available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. When I've tuned into some of these macro discussions, one term I hear a lot is a Fed put. Could you explain to our audience what a Fed put is? Absolutely. Fed put comes from sort of this post GFC kind of state status with respect to the Federal Reserve prior to the GFC. You can make the case that the Fed really only cared about growth through the lens of the labor market and its labor market mandate, and it only really cared about inflation through its inflation mandate. Maximum employment and stable prices are the exact words written into the Federal Reserve mandate. Since the GFC, the market has really interpreted the Fed as having a, a sort of a tacit third mandate, which is financial stability and maintaining, you know, making sure asset markets function well from the perspective of the stock market, making sure it goes up over time, you know, like more or less, you know. And so that sort of Fed put, if you will, is this sort of concept amongst investors whereby, and much like how a put would sort of give you this sort of return profile, if the market goes down enough, eventually we're going to get a policy response that kicks in and starts to get you paid on the long side of risk assets, similar to owning a put. If the market goes down enough, eventually the put will come into money and you'll be able to monetize the put for some intrinsic value and maybe even some time value to extend it. You can monetize it sooner. That's the market effectively saying, hey, look, I'm hedged because I know the Fed is going to bail me out at a certain price. And my, our, the core thesis uh, heading into this year 
was that the strike price of the Fed put is significantly lower now than it has been at any point in time in this post-crisis era. You go back to kind of Q4, 18, the Fed put, we kind of determined or we learned by a process of trial and error that the Fed put was down 20% on the S&P 500. Recall Jay Powell after that Christmas massacre in 2018, he kind of pivoted right after. He pivoted very quickly after making some very hawkish comments and that really caused the market to rally throughout 2019. We saw the Fed put kick in around 20% or around 10, 15% in 2020, but it was like, we were starting to get like 10% down days. And so ultimately it turned out to be a more of a 34% decline, but based on our math and we can unpack any of the, the sort of the tools that we use to get to this number, but our model suggesting that the Fed put it somewhere around down 30%. And so that's at the bare minimum, at least 10% lower than it has been in recent years. And that's something that in our opinion, asset markets are going to have to find out the hard way. Yeah. So the Fed's objectives or stated objectives is to minimize unemployment and have price stability, correct? And then you're saying there's a third kind of objective, which is to keep financial markets in check, especially the stock market propped up. So back in the 2018 timeframe, we saw a 20% drawdown. And with the Fed now tightening like they were during that period, is it just inevitable over the coming year or two that the, eventually the stock market's going to deflate and come down a little bit? You're saying 30% or so, and they're going to have to do this. Another term where we see a lot is the Powell pivot or the Fed pivot. And here's the issue with the asset markets as it relates today, because everything you said is correct. The problem is inflation is not going to come down fast enough for them to give, give you a pivot anytime soon. Now, if, we get a, if the stock market starts really sniffing, you're having a, a real material problem, let's call it three or four quarters from now, inflation will be much lower three or four quarters from now, and it will give them the left scope to pivot. The problem is in this window of time that we have, this sort of six to seven month window of time between now and like Q4, where inflation is likely, even though it's probably going to be coming down on a year-over-year basis, it's still going to be very elevated, both from a levels perspective, but also from a momentum perspective, because they haven't really done anything to cause that to go down yet. From a, from a monetary tightening standpoint, we've only seen 25 basis points of rate hikes thus far. And so you know, the issue is, as long as we're in this window of time where they really realistically can't pivot, that's where you can see a lot of downside risk in the market, because we're also walking into a scenario, and we can unpack this as well, where growth has been modestly decelerating for a while now, really going back to the summertime of last year, but it's likely to start to decelerate at a much faster pace. And in terms of how we've back tested this at 42 Macro, that really does matter. In terms of, well, I'll give you a few stats on this. When the, as when the US economy is slowing and we look at composite leading indicators as our proxy for growth, and we look at headline inflation as our proxy for inflation within our grid model, grid regime process, when you're in sort of a decelerating grid regime, and growth's only slowing modestly, the stock market actually has a positive expected value. It's right around plus 5% on an annualized basis. When you're slowing at a moderate pace, that plus 5% swings over to minus 6. When you're slowing at a meaningful pace, minus 30 is the annualized rate of change for the S&P. And so we're heading into a period where we're going from slowing at a modest pace to slowing at a moderate pace to slowing at a meaningful pace over the next kind of six months. That's a problem. You know, with the level of involvement in the markets by the Federal Reserve, I almost question how reliable past data is, especially over the past 40 years or so. I'm curious what your thoughts are around that. There's a number of ways to construct backtests, and this is why we're so keen on rate of change in our process, because rate of change is agnostic to the level of activity or kind of the general comings and goings of what's going on. A second derivative acceleration or deceleration in a growth or inflation time series is the same in 1970 as it is in 2023. 
Now, the level of inflation might be different or the level of growth nominal or real might be different, but the actual delta, the direction and the magnitude of the change on an absolute basis relative to its trailing sample is the same. So as we construct all our back tests to be agnostic to the time period, we just want to know the kinds of influences that really matter to asset markets. The rate of change of growth and inflation are the number two, number one and number two principal components for asset class returns most, across most asset classes. And then obviously the change in policy expectations or realized policy, I would argue expectations are, are more important. The change in policy expectations would be the third principal component of most asset class returns. So if you can get growth, inflation, and policy right in rate of change terms and in magnitude terms, you can definitely do some damage in terms of ultimately constructing portfolios to deal with some of these risks. Asset prices were really running hot late 2021. I'm curious why the Fed was so late to the game in raising rates. You know, it wasn't until call it March 2022 where they were actually taking action. It was just 0.25% base, 25 basis points raise in the federal funds rate. So I'm curious why they were so late to the game on this. You know, I hate to be overly critical because I think these guys have a really difficult job, particularly in this awkward post pandemic economy that we're not really quite sure what's structural and what's cyclical yet from that perspective. But they got the call wrong on inflation. I mean, it's just as simple as that. It was transitory, it was transitory, it was transitory until it wasn't transitory, right? And so, you know what I mean? Like, just based on that call alone, they thought that they had scope to maintain a very aggressive easing monetary policy setting. And they did. And part of the reason they did that is goes back to the pivot that they made with respect to their mandate back in uh, the summer of 2020, back in Jackson Hole into the fall of 2020, where they adopt, they amended their, their employment mandate to, to include maximum and inclusive employment. And so that was cool. That was, that was a political response to sort of the zeitgeist of the economy at the time, which was, hey, look, man, you guys always pull out the punch bowl when like these disaffected groups, Latino Americans, uh, females, Asian Americans, with like the labor market tends to heat up for those groups slower and at a later date than it does for, let's call it white males or something like that. And so the Fed adopted its mandate a little bit or amended its mandate a little bit to allow them to be easier for longer to allow these other disaffected pockets of the labor market to heal to a much better degree. Now, fast forward to Q3, Q4 of last year, even Q1 of this year, you're desperately trying to maintain that, trying to hang on to that new policy framework, while at the same time, they're getting roiled on inflation. And they're saying, no, it's transitory. We got to help these folks out. It's transitory, it's transitory, transitory. And guess what? They were wrong on that call. And so now they got to speed up and do a lot, a whole lot of tightening in 2022. I almost feel like the Fed's playbook is to try and let inflation run hot, but kind of hide the real effects of the inflation we'll have on the economy, especially with as high as the federal debt levels are. I can go both ways on that. And here's why. So it doesn't strike me that anyone on the Fed specifically is focused on helping the fiscal authority delever. It doesn't try. It doesn't to me. It seems to me that that's more of a regulatory ordeal. Going back to what I mentioned with respect to bank balance sheets, that the regulatory framework around who needs to own what and who needs to have what treasuries as collateral. To me, that seems to be kind of the preferred tool among policymakers to kind of effectively, you know, allow the government. I wouldn't necessarily say to allow the fiscal authority to delever because I'm not sure that you need to delever ever if you're reserve currency. The issue is not the leverage for the reserve currency. The issue is what does this all this incremental debt mean as it relates to the riskiness within the economy, the kind of inflation we type of see. It tends to be deflationary, actually. And you have an outstanding, large outstanding stock of debt. So that going back to this Fed, what they really wanted to do was just get the labor market to a place where they can say, aha, we did it. We fixed it. We're now woke we're, and we fixed it and everybody's high-fiving each other in every pocket of the labor market. 
And guess what? They just got the inflation call wrong. And so as it relates to um, kind of allowing the fiscal authority to delever, I don't really think that's really part of their mandate or not part of the mandate. I don't think that they're really focused on that. To me, I think they're what they're really focused on are these economic outcomes. And as a byproduct of that focus, you know, you tend to get this ex- you get this sort of narrative amongst investors that the Fed is trying to, you know, in cahoots with the fiscal authority to, to delever. There is no need to delever. The U.S. is the reserve currency. They can issue as much debt as they want as far as the eye can see until that status is threatened. With the high inflation we've seen, I was curious how asset classes performed in past inflationary periods. I took a look back at the 1940s and 1970s. And this is an idea I pulled from Lynn Alden. She believes that the current period will be more similar to the 1940s because we have interest rates much lower than CPI inflation. Mm -hmm. While in the 70s, we generally had a premium on interest rates to at least cover that CPI inflation rate. Given that, I was curious how stocks performed specifically during the 1940s. And I saw that in January of 1940, the S&P 500 was trading at around $245, ended the decade at 205 So negative return on the S&P 500 and just a ton of volatility along the way with inflation moving up and down throughout that period. Now with yeah. that, do you believe that there is still a case for investors to be heavily allocated towards equities? Like I'm, I'm going to assume you're going to say diversify into some other asset classes, at least at this point. Yeah, let's go back to the 40s and 70s. So one thing that was, that is a lot of stuff to unpack. Let me start by kind of differentiating the 40s from the 70s. The 40s was a fiscal authority driven inflation, kind of similar to what we have today in terms of the fiscal authority, just dumping a ton of money into the real economy and really causing a kind of supply demand imbalance on the productive sector of the economy. The 70s was sort of more of a supply shock driven inflation associated with a a labor market, kind of a wage price spiral that we saw in the labor market, mostly as a function of price controls and unions. And so it's a very different kind of, those are two very different setups, but they both kind of had the same outcome as it relates to the financial market response, which is stocks very volatile, having some big drawdowns and actually some big recoveries as well. We had a couple of times in the 70s don't quote me on the dates, but you know we had inflation peak uh, kind of in, I want to say, 1944, 1945. It came down quite a bit and the stock market had a meaningful rally as a function of that. And then ultimately, we had a secondary wave of inflation kind of in the latter part of the decade. And ultimately, that caused another crash in the market and we had to rally from that as well. So that flat performance was sort of rife with some pretty big accelerations in the stock market and, and some massive crashes as well. And ultimately, we wound up flat. That's kind of similar to what happened in the 70s as well. But the one thing that's kind of different with respect to the 70s is that commodities were, were the place to be. Commodities, gold, you know, that's where you really got paid as an investor. Treasuries obviously did very poorly in that decade um, alongside stocks, certainly on a relative basis to commodities as well. So taking this to answer your question on, on asset allocation front, we don't have the view that we're going to maintain this sort of very aggressive, persistently high level of inflation. You know, we built a model, dynamic factor model here, 42 macro, uh, called our secular inflation model, looks at basically everything that drives inflation that we know to be a driver of inflation, globalization, automation, the dominance of tech in, in the economy, money supply, all these sort of critical variables. And right now, that model is suggesting that inflation is somewhere around kind of 100 basis on the high end of that projection range, somewhere around 100 basis points higher on average than it, than it has been in the recent trailing 10-year period. That tells you that we're going to have a decent amount more inflation. It's roughly about 40% more inflation than we've been used to in the previous decade. But 40% more inflation relative to the previous decade is nothing like the 1940s or nothing like the 1970s. We just happen to be in a very inflationary period of that time uh, now. So inflation is likely to come down. 
is it going to go back to where it was prior to COVID? No, absolutely not. And our model suggesting it's probably unlikely to do that. However, is it going to stick around these levels that kind of continue to cause investors to invoke, you know, memories in the 1940s or the 1970s? Probably not, at least not according to what our models are saying currently. Yeah. One of the reasons I was just curious about your thoughts on, you know, inflation in the markets is millennials. A lot of them might just believe, hey, I'm just going to go 100% stocks because stocks only go up because that's all they've seen over the past 10 years. But you look at some of these other periods, there you know, there are decades where stocks have done very poorly. And I believe the 10-year return on the S&P 500 is something like 15%, give or take. And that's a, just exceptional. And you're going to need a lot of things to go right to achieve double-digit returns over the next decade after accounting for whatever inflation ends up being. Yeah. So, I mean, think about this. So the starting point, so this we know, valuation is not a catalyst. It does not cause markets to go up or down. Valuation tends to really only work on longer durations. So three years out, five years out, 10 years out. In fact, the further out you go, the the better the correlation between whatever the valuation metric you're looking at and the projected return profile. We know we're starting at a very precarious point from a lot of valuation metrics, whether you look at markets, you know, price to book, you look at it on, you know, price to earnings, you look at it on market cap to GDP. Pick your valuation metric. My, one of my favorite metrics is looking at the earnings yield of the S and P. That's you know the reverse of the price to earnings ratio, and then subtracting that from inflation, subtracting inflation from that. So you're looking at it kind of what's the cost of the market on a real basis, kind of makes it apples to apples to other uh, financial instruments. And not only is this the lowest print we've ever had, but there's only been six negative inversions, six, six negative prints in this time series going back to the late 1960s. And the median S and P 500 drawdown from those negative prints, when when their earnings uh, earnings yield is is negative on a real basis, is minus forty one percent. I mean, that's a big drawdown. I mean, uh, median. By the way, median of those six episodes is minus forty one percent. So obviously, you had to quite a few um, or a couple uh, that were worse. And so that's kind of a long winded way of saying this market is in a. Just if you're a millennial investor and you're someone who kind of looks at a chart of the stock market and say. Well, why would I pay for risk management services? Why would I pay for active management? I can just put all my money in stock market or crypto and YOLO. And the reality is a lot of the drivers of getting us to that point, they're not here anymore. We don't have a Federal Reserve that's going to be able to maintain that high level of a Fed put strike price anymore. That Fed put is much, that strike price is much lower now. And so you have to deal with a lot more two-way volatility, a lot more downside deviation risk. In this turn, in this kind of longer term path forward from here. And so that makes it a much more challenging environment to sit there, naked long, risk assets, YOLOing, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of a thing of the past at this point. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure ready RAV4, available with all wheel drive. Your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Rob's Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. 
Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. And getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their book in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Business owners know the power and simplicity of using one tool for things such as scaling up their business, adopting new business models, and easily viewing real-time analytics on one interface. NetSuite offers the unprecedented ability to make all this possible. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com mi. That's netsuite.com mi to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com mi. All right, back to the show. You know, another thing that's been on my mind on why I'm personally concerned about inflation persisting is just the negative spread on the treasury yield curve. The 30-year treasury rate is, let's stick with the 10-year. The 10-year treasury is 2.7% and the CPI inflation is 8%. I would expect those bonds to sell off and inevitably the Federal Reserve will have to step in and stop that sell-off from occurring and they'll step in and buy those. And that's more money printing that's into the system. So that's one of the reasons I'm concerned about inflation personally. But again, I am definitely no macro expert. So I'm curious what your thoughts are around that idea. This we know, inflation tends not to come out of the direct monetary channel. Inflation tends to come more from the fiscal channel because at the end of the day, what inflation really is, is a misalignment between supply and demand. And so you actually need to stimulate supply. I mean, in theory, if the Fed starts to ease its balance sheet again and really cause the stock market to rise, then there is a wealth effect, but it's a much more indirect effect in terms of perpetuating inflation than actual fiscal stimulus or something of that nature. So from that perspective, I'd be much more worried about inflation persisting if we continue to see you know, something that looked like a very aggressive fiscal agenda. It's very unlikely we have an aggressive fiscal agenda. I mean, going back to the fall of last year, it became pretty clear to us at 42 Macro that we weren't going to get a dime more fiscal stimulus. Sort of that this sort of tech that then tertiary wave of inflation, now we're onto our fourth wave. That third wave of inflation really kind of took Joe Manchin, Senator Cinema out of the fiscal stimulus discussions, which they are very much needed given how tight the, the margins are in the Senate, it's as tight as ever been, it's as tight as it's ever been in the House in terms of the Democrats winning or Democratic majority. 
And so without that majority, you're not going to get another dollar of stimulus, at least not for, you know, at least not until we get to the other side of whatever down cycle we're heading into the economy. And so that's probably, um, from my perspective, it doesn't mean inflation, again, inflation is not going back to where it came from. It's going to be roughly 40% higher on average than it had been in the prior decade. That's just not runaway inflation. It's not 1940-style inflation. It's the 1970-style inflation. We don't have the changes in the drivers of inflation that we've observed thus far to get us to that point. We could. We just haven't seen it yet. Lately, we've seen the inversion of the treasury yield curves. I pulled up the three-year treasury rate and the 10-year rate. The three-year today is around 2.7%, and the 10-year rate is also around 2.7%. What does the inversion of the yield curve indicate for what's going on in the markets? Yeah, so there's really three treasury curves that matter to professional investors on Wall Street. There's the 530 curve that really tells you sort of how scared the market is about inflation. The tens twos curve really tells you how scared is the market about growth. And then the three-month 10-year curve tells you, is the economy about to go into a recession over the near term? And so right now, we've seen, obviously, an inversion in the tens two curve. We saw an inversion in both 530s and tens two. The tens two is the one that has more people concerned as it relates to their investment portfolios because it ultimately is signaling that the countdown clock is now officially on for a recession over the next one to two years. Now, that's, in my opinion, one to two years is a really long time frame. You know, as we've just seen with the markets up basically 100% over the last two years, there's a lot of stuff can happen in two years' time, right? And so, as investors, we need to be a lot more specific than that. But it really just does is it gives us the, it lets us know that we're on that path. And so, it's our job as investors to start to look for incremental clues, incremental evidence along the way that tells us, hey, this path is getting truncated. We actually now need to start worrying about recession as opposed to just merely talking about it. You know, it relates to kind of what you, what you brought up earlier. That inversion of the curve is a signal. And again, we are now on that path forward. And so the next thing we should be looking for as investors is inversion in the three-month tenure curve. Now, we're not going to get an inversion in the three-month tenure curve anytime soon because we need to see the Fed actually hike interest rates to get three-month bills to reprice higher in yield terms. So that process in terms of getting to a potential inversion in that curve, that's something that could be two, three, four, five quarters away or you know, perhaps you know, maybe even on the shorter end of that range if growth starts to slow at a more material pace because that'll put a cap on the long end of the curve and really start to um, maybe even cause bonds to go down on the long end of the curve. We're not at that point yet in the process, but I'm certainly got my eyes glued to that over the next few months and quarters. I was listening to a We Study Billionaires podcast interview with Preston yeah. Pish and Lawrence Lepard. They were talking all macro and they mentioned that the Russian sanctions were a giant advertisement for gold and Bitcoin. Why do you think yeah. the prices of these two assets have remained stagnant for the most part, despite these sanctions? Well, part of it, Bitcoin is it's a risk. It's a risk asset. And so, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's like trailing 90-day correlation to the NASDAQ somewhere around like 0.69 or something like that. It's become a higher beta expression of tech stocks. That's obviously not the intent of the asset class. There's obviously a lot more going on there. But for now, it's a risk asset. And this is something I've been talking about for the last two years, which is if the bull case for crypto is institutional adoption, then institutional adoption, when you pull it into the traditional finance you know, pockets of the market, it's going to be subject to all the risk management parameters and rules and that other asset classes are. There's VAR, there's, there's value at risk. There's all these models that effectively say, hey, look, this asset's doing too much. I got to reduce my exposure to it. And I think that's partially why we're seeing crypto trade more in lockstep with the broader market, because those are kinds of decisions, systematic decisions that are being made at the margins. With respect to gold, 
I mean, gold's been somewhat confounding, but one thing that's really caused gold, and quite frankly, I think gold is trading quite well, given what I'm about to say. The real interest rate in the country just went from minus 109 basis points of so minus 1.09% to minus 13 basis points. We almost had a 100 basis point rise in the 10-year tip shield, the 10-year real interest rate in a matter of a month. And gold is, you know, gold is basically flat. And so to me, that's a big deal because that is the real interest rates tend to be the key driver of gold. And so for the fact that gold is flat, to me, it's telling you that there's a real structural underlying bid to the asset. You know, I'd be concerned about gold if we saw kind of just making new lows as a function of that. But the fact that we're not even making new lows in the context of that big move in real interest rates tells me that what we're talking about with respect to Bitcoin and gold and that advertisement that this sort of um, the, the kind of what I would consider to be sort of regulatory overreach out of these authorities, that regulatory overreach is actually is catalyzing some inflows into gold. And oh, by the way, we, the one thing I thought was very positive for crypto, we didn't make new lows in crypto. We bottomed, I want to say, in January of this year. We didn't make new lows in February. We didn't make new lows in stocks, made new lows in early March. And so to me, I think much like what I said about gold, you can tell that there is an underlying structural bid there. We can see it on on-chain data as well. It's been very quite positive in terms of whales accumulating supply, short-term holders you know, kind of going back into the green and all that stuff. So it's been positive at the margins. It's just that the asset class itself is trading heavy alongside broader risk assets. I'm curious to ask you, are there any assets or asset classes that you think are good risk reward today, given what you know about the macro forces in the markets? Yeah, cash. Cash is probably one of the best. You know, It sounds boring as all hell, but when you're in a bear market, as we thought we've been in a bear market since going back to January, you're in a bear market. And there's two things we said at the beginning of the year. One, at the, by, the end, by the end of the year, everyone's going to be talking about the R word. Um, that's already, it's already April and we're, everyone's talking about the R word, which is recession. Um, and then number two, the market's probably heading into a bear market. Now, there's two types of bear markets. There's the, we go down 20% really quickly over you know, like a matter of weeks or months, or there's the kind of longer term structural bear market that looks more like 07 to 09 or 2000 to 2002, which people have forgotten those exist. Where you just you don't make new highs for a really long period of time. In fact, I wrote a note in in February of 2013 about celebrating that the fact that the market had made a new high finally. It had peaked in November 2007. Prior to me even joining Wall Street, I started my career in Wall Street in, in 2009 after I graduated. And in February of 2013, I wrote a note about how the market had finally made a new high. You know, so this is what I mean. Like you can have these sort of long-term bear markets where you're dead money or losing money or flat money for a really long period of time. And I think that January high in the S and P's is probably something that November high in crypto. It's, there's going to be some highs that we have to deal with for a long time as investors to the extent that folks did risk manage that poorly. Let me summarize. I mean, because you know, I, I sound pretty bearish, but my goal isn't to scare people and you know, shorting everything and doing everything. What we're trying to do is help investors just be thoughtful about the kinds of risks they're taking but also the overall amount of risk they're taking, because those are two very different things, right? And so, you know, as it relates to now, we're, we're just in a part of the cycle where it's basically the opposite of what we had from 2020 to 2021. You know, we were as bearish as I sound now, and you can all fact check me on this. I was saying the exact opposite going back to 2020. We were like, hey, we're about to have five things happen that almost never happened together. One, you're going to have accelerating growth, accelerating inflation, aggressive expansion or aggressive monetary easing, aggressive fiscal easing, and corporate profit growth accelerating, margins widening and all that good stuff. We basically have all five of those things moving in reverse now, with the exception of inflation. But again, it's about the peak. So you're going to have all five of the things that caused the massive rally in crypto, the massive rally in stocks from the lows of 2020 through the highs of 2021, or even into the early part of this year. 
those things are all working in reverse and they're going to be working in reverse for an extended period of time. So why would you as an investor expect anything but the opposite of what we experience in positive price appreciation terms over the medium term? So it's just understanding that it's going to be a lot difficult to make money. This is an alpha market. It's not a beta market. A beta market is where you can be long assets and you don't have to trade them as much. The alpha market is a market that you need to be, you need to trade a lot more actively to the extent you want to be participating. If you don't want to be participating, you can just, like I said, raise cash and look to buy things back at a cheaper price um, and a much better valuations. But if you want to remain actively participating in financial markets, you're going to have to tighten up your duration in some of these holdings and be willing to be flexible, you know, trading, you know, booking gains along the way and things of that nature. So we can certainly help with that at 42 Macro, but you know, even if it's not us, just be aware of all these dynamics as we progress throughout the year. Awesome. Yeah, it definitely seems like a time to at least a bit more cautious as an investor. Darius, with that, it's been a true honor to have you on the show. I really can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us today. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience go to connect with you and 42 Macro? I appreciate you, Clay, man. It's an honor to join you as well, my friend. 42macro.com. Come check us out. We have you know, all of our research out there. I got sample reports of everything. You know, we definitely cover crypto. We cover what we're really trying to do at 42macro is take our institutional knowledge of all of those systems and processes that you know, Wall Street's top hedge funds use to manage risk and distill that information for everyone so that everyone can manage risk at a high level as opposed to getting run over in these big crashes and things of that nature. So 42macro.com. Come check us out. I'm on Twitter. I'm pretty prolific on Twitter at uh, 42macro, D-Dale, D-D-A-L-E. Appreciate y'all. Awesome. Thank you, Darius. I appreciate you, Clayman. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.